him, we can feel him, we can love him, we can experience him. He wants to talk to us. He wants to get right up in the middle of our business. And, and the, the, the significance of our Pentecostal spirituality is that we worship God, serve God, have relationship with God, not just with our intellect or our behavior, but with our affections, with our emotions. God, the scripture says, is touched by our emotions, by our feelings. God is an emotional God. God does things because he's mad. He does things because he's happy. He is moved by his emotions and you are made in his image and we are emotional beings. All the men say yes. On behalf of your wife, say yes. <laughs> and so we have to understand that there is a value specifically as Triumph Church, as one who has its roots in Pentecostal spirituality, there is a value that we place on our affections. And God wants to capture your heart, not because you have verbally committed your life to him, but because he has reoriented the affections, the desires of your life to be in alignment with his. Okay, and so uh, let me give you a couple words here that we're going to go with. I'm, I'm teaching tonight, and so watch out. Orthodoxy. Everybody say orthodoxy. Okay, this means, ortho means right, doxy means worship, or right worship, right belief, right thinking is another way to define this word. Okay, these are components of your spirituality and my spirituality. We must have right belief, right thinking, right? And then... There is orthopraxy. Now, Pastor Lindsay mentioned orthodontistry. No. <laughs> but this means right, what do you think? Practice. Okay, from the Latin word praxis. Or this means that there is right practice or behavior. This is belief. This is behavior, Okay. And then here's the third dimension of our spirituality, and this is orthopathy, P-A-T-H-Y, from the word pathos, which has its clue in emotion or affection. Being a mature Christian, a mature disciple, means that you believe the right things, you do the right things, and you have the right affections. And it's important that you and I monitor these areas of our life because a mature Christian is one who is living in maturity at the intersection of what I believe and think and say, because words are the products of, of, of beliefs, what I think, what I do, and what I love all have to intersect. Because we can think the right things but not do them. And what does that mean? It means that we're an immature Christian. We can do the right things because we believe the right things, but if it's not in your heart, as Pastor Lindsay referenced, then what? It doesn't matter. So I would even say the kicker here is that we have to work. This is, the hard, this is easy, right? You just get the right information. This is fairly easy. You just you know, make yourself do the right things. Now, that can be harder or easier for some people, but you can monitor it, right? This is the tough one is our affections, Am I thinking and doing and walking with Christ, not just on the outside or in my mind, but has God captured my heart? And am I walking with God because my affections, the de deepest desires, motives of my heart have been changed by the Holy Spirit? See, because in every religious or philosophical system is either based on one of these three 
foundations. They are either a thinking system, a feeling system, or a doing system. And so Islam, Buddhist, self-improvement, any of these guys are all based on either a thinking system. If I just think the right things, believe the right things, then I will understand the meaning of life, be able to actualize or do well or be successful. If I just master these set of ideas, these principles, these thoughts, these uh, concepts, then I will have everything I need, life, happiness, all that kind of stuff, right? Other systems may not be based on that, but they're based on, um, on feeling, right? If I just have this experience in the middle of life, then it will define all of life and let me know what my purpose is and what everything is supposed to be, right? So some systems, religious or or philosophical systems, are based on feeling. Then there are others that are based on doing. Everybody shout doing, so I know you're alive. Doing, okay? Now that means that if I just do these things, then I will have peace, I will be successful, all things will work out. If I just master these sets of behavior, these habits, reorient these these outward things in my life, right? So every religious or philosophical system of the world is based on one of these three concepts with the exception of Christianity, okay? So uh, systems may say, well, if I just believe this is the... the, um, the epistemological system, this is the product of beliefs, of words, because words are the, are the product of what you believe, right? As a man, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what, speaks, right? Or if I just uh, do the right things, this is the pragmatical. How many pragmatical people, right? We just would say, okay, if you just do this, this, and that, then your life's going to work out, right? Or some people are, man, if you, just, if you just had this experience or did, you know. And so everything is based on... On this, and so all major religions or philosophical ideals are based on one of these three things. Then Jesus comes in and he changes all the rules. And so Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? So Jesus says, I am the way. He didn't say, I know the way. He didn't say, let me point to you the way. He didn't say, uh, if you follow me, I will show you the way. He said, I am the way. He said, I am the way. So he defined the way or he defined all behavior by himself. Not by anything external, but by himself. He said, I am the truth. So then he goes into the belief system, into the epistemological realm, into the orthodoxy. He says, I am the truth. He didn't say, I know the truth. He didn't say, let me tell you the truth. He didn't say, if you listen to what I'm saying, you will uh, understand the truth. If you master what I'm telling you, these concepts, these principles. He did not say that. He did not. We must understand, Christians... That Jesus did not come to teach us principles, to give us a list of behaviors, or to just help us have a feeling or an experience. He defined all of life, all of reality, not by what he taught or what he did or how people felt, but by himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So in the life, he gets over into the orthopathy or to the affection. It's not that you have to have an experience in the middle of your, your reality that will define your reality. He said, I am life. So in fact, you don't start, you, you don't get a better life when you come to Jesus. Actually, before you encounter Christ who is life, you are not alive. You may breathe, you may have a pulse, you may have brain activity, but you're spiritually dead. Jesus said, I am the life. That means when we encounter Christ, his person, not his teaching, not his principle 
principal, not what you learn in Sunday school, but when you encounter the man, Christ Jesus, then you who were previously dead in your sins and trespasses become alive. Shout amen. amen. So here's the difference between us and every other religion or philosophical system in the world. Any other system, you can remove the founder and the system continues. So if you were to talk to a Buddhist and you were to say, Hey, thankful for the Buddha and all the great things that he taught us, but perhaps could someone else have given us these principles, this way, this path, than the Buddha? Now, they would be insistent that the Buddha was the one who received this revelation and gave it. But if you press them about it, they would say, Yes, well, if you, just, you could remove the Buddha from this system, follow these principles, follow this plan, and the system would continue. The results would continue. Even more so if you were to press a Muslim, someone who believes in Islam. And you were to say, now, you say you believe that Muhammad was the prophet from God who revealed all of this information. But could it have been someone else? Could God, could Allah have chosen someone other than the prophet Muhammad to deliver this way to us? Now, they would be even more insistent that it, no, it was Muhammad. He is the senior prophet. He is the one from God. But if you push them on it, could, hypothetically, God have chosen someone else? And they would have to answer Yes, because if you removed Muhammad from the system of Islam, the system, the religion would continue. However, when you look at Jesus Christ, you realize that he is the system. You can't remove Jesus from Christianity and still have Christianity. Because Christianity is not a way to live, it's not a thought pattern, and it's not even a set of experiences. It is a person. It is the God-man, Jesus Christ. He defines all of life. In him we live, Paul said to the Colossian church, and move and have our being. There is no life outside of Christ. There is no right belief outside of Christ. There is no right affection or behavior outside of Jesus Christ. Therefore... The most important thing I can focus on, the most important thing I could go after or pursue or give my life to, my money to, my pursuit to, is becoming more intimately known by and knowing Jesus Christ. Amen? Because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, with that said... Jesus gives us not a way to think, a way to behave, or a way to feel, but a new manner of being. Jesus defined all life by his being. And when we come to Christ, he doesn't just teach us what to think, how to act, or how to feel. But he gives us an entirely new way of being. And that is being in Christ. So what I want to focus on, though, for the, just the next few minutes from Psalm 63 is developing this, uh, this one leg. So if you want to be a mature Christian, the reason why I shared all of this with you is that you have to have the balance of all of these three sides. Anytime we're just focusing on behavior, but it's not out of right knowledge, then it's, it's off balance. Anytime we're, we're focusing on behavior, but, it's, but our heart's not in the right place, then we're misguided, right? Or you can have all of the great behavior on the outside, but if your thinking system, if, if your belief system is off, then it doesn't matter. You can love God, but have wrong beliefs. Many people have that, right? And it doesn't help you out, right? There are a lot of people who are sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. 
But as Christians in the church today, I don't think we have as much trouble with what we believe. We know what to do. We'll be quick to tell you what to do to fix your, fix your life. But this is the challenge, the affection. What does the enemy compete for? Usually in my life, the enemy doesn't really compete for my belief system. That's kind of solid, right? He doesn't usually compete for my behavior. I mean, the enemy knows that he's not, that, that I, I am at the place in my relationship with God that I'm not going to willingly, knowingly trespass or sin against God, break the commandments or the laws of God, right? But the enemy comes after this area. And he even knows with this, he's not going to get me to love something that is against God, that is contrary to God. He just wants to get me to love something at the same level as God or to pursue something instead of God. And so after living for Jesus and being full of his Holy Spirit for more than 20 years, this is what I have to keep coming back to. Are the affections of my heart his affections? Has he reoriented? Am I allowing the Holy Spirit to redirect my heart so that instead of loving these things, I love him more? And so this is what the patriarch David was so incredible about was his affections. Everybody say affections. Okay, look at Psalm 63. I'm just going to read through a couple of this. And if you like lists, because everybody likes lists, I'm going to give you uh, probably six things real quick that will help you develop a more affective spirituality, okay? Because David was an awesome man. Now, listen to this, guys, because I know Father's Day is coming up and all that. You know, David was a bad man. I mean, a, a Billy bad A, okay? He was a bad man. I mean, he was a, meaning that he could just kick butt and take names, open up a can. He was a big dude, okay? See, y'all all got religious on me. You're mad at me now because I said A, and A represented uh, the King James word for donkey, right? <laughs> so David knew how to just like slay thousands of people, blood all over. In fact, God said, you can't even build my temple, David. You got all the money, you got all the plans, but you can't even build it because you got too much blood on your hands. But David also was so unique in that he knew how to be. He was a man who was so in touch with his emotions. He would weep and dance and shout before. David, this king who had so much blood on his hands that he couldn't even build God's temple. God calls him a man after my heart. David is responsible for giving you and I our entire New Testament expression of worship that we participated in tonight. You wouldn't know that God wants to be worshipped by having your hands lifted, by having uh, your, your hands clapped, by shouting and leaping. You wouldn't know that if it weren't for this man, David. So David was so powerful in that he was a man's man, but he was so in touch with his, with his affections that his heart was tied to the heart of God. So he's going to tell us what we need to do. Psalm 63, he says in verse 1, Oh God, you are my God. Everybody shout, my God. Number one, to have an effective spirituality. Not an effective, but an affective. You have to have a personal connection with God. You have to have a personal relationship. He said, oh God, you are my God. Not mama's God, daddy's God, not triumph's God, not my friend's God. You are my God. You have to have a personal connection. And then he said, earnestly, I seek you. Everybody say earnestly. 
This has to do with clear priorities. Number two, you have to have clear priorities. Of all the things that David could pursue, listen, he was the king of Israel in its glory, most glorious day. There were hundreds and thousands of subjects and rulers and leaders that he was responsible for. David was torn in a hundred different directions. But he said, God, you are my God. Earnestly, this is my priority, I will seek you. Right? And Jesus affirmed it in Matthew 6, 33, right? Where he said, seek ye what? First, the kingdom of God. And then what happens? All these things will be added. So if you seek things, you miss the kingdom, but if you seek the kingdom, if you seek Jesus, because kingdom just means the rule, the authority of God. If you seek God's rule in your life, then he'll take care of all the things. But David, in his affective spirituality, he said, God, you are my God. He had a personal relationship with God. Then he said, earnestly, I will seek you clear priorities. You'll never have your heart oriented to God if he is not your priority. Now, remember, I didn't say number one. See, this is not... The priority list, okay? Everybody's like, dang, it's not... It's not like God, then my wife, then my kids, then the ministry, then my career, then all those things. Because this, this list kind of does us wrong. Because it's like, okay, God, check, got that done, right? Now I can move on to my spouse, right? No, it's not God, then my spouse, then my family. It's actually God in my relationship with my wife. God in my family. God in my ministry. God in my career. He's not number one. He's not the first priority. He is the central factor of everything in my life. He is the center of my life. And I'm not trying to get get God on my priority list. I'm trying to get God in my priority. Earnestly, I will seek you. And then he goes on to number three that I'm going to give you. It says, he says, listen to this language. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And then he describes it even more. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David wrote this possibly when he was in the wilderness fleeing from the wrath of Saul. And he was looking at the desert. And he said, as this parched ground is begging for water, my flesh and my soul thanks for you, craves you. Did you know that you were made to live in the presence of God? Did you know that in your DNA, you were created You are most natural. You need, like oxygen, the presence of God. When God created you, you were made to be in 
constant communion with God, right? Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. They fell from in, in, into sin and sin entered the world and man was separated from God. But through Christ who made a way, who made payment for our sin, through Christ now we can be reconciled to God. What does that mean? But it means that we are brought back into right relationship. What is right relationship? It is original intent, the original intent that God had for man when he created him that we would be together in constant communion. So for the redeemed man or woman of God, for you or for I, who is, is in Christ, we were made for the presence of God and literally our not only soul and heart, but our flesh cries out to be in God's presence. That's why you get chill bumps when you're in the presence of God. That's why you feel fulfilled and your body feels better when you're in the presence of God because you were made to be in his presence. And part of having an affection toward God is that you long to be in his presence, not just in your heart, not just in your mind, but you cry out for him with your physical body. So, verse 2. Five minutes in for a landing. This is number four if you're making notes. So he goes, he says, look, you're my God personal relationship. Earnestly I seek you, clear priorities. My flesh longs for you. And so that is a deep intensity is number three. You have a deep intensity. I am so sick of, of Christians with, with no intensity. Listen, don't give me this, well, it's just my personality. Baloney. <laughs> then you need a new personality. Then let Jesus change your personality. Well, you know, brother, I just don't have that much of a testimony. I didn't smoke or drink or whore around or any of that kind of stuff, you know. Been married to the same woman forever, been serving Jesus since I was two, all that kind of... As if moving from dead to life is not enough testimony. Hey, I was the most self-righteous of all of them. I never did any of that kind of stuff, but I was still dead in my sin and trespasses. I went to church. I did the right things, but I was dead, and Christ made me alive. And that's a testimony worth being a little bit happy about. <laughs> so he said in verse 2, he said, So, everybody shout, so. I love that word so. It means the proof. Here it is. Let me give you this statement. The proof of desire is pursuit. Don't tell me you want something and you're not going after it. You don't want it. If you desire something, then my next question is, what are you doing to go after it? Oh, well, I'm not doing it. You don't, you don't want it. Can I get an amen from a brother who actually went after a lady who is now your wife, right? Don't say, well, that's my wife, but bless God, you just said, no, if you want, go after it, right? People tell me all the time, you know, well, I wish I could play the piano or the keyboard or the organ or sing or, or anything like that. Well, are you in lessons? Have you taken, do you have a keyboard? Oh, no, no. You don't want it. Because the proof of desire is pursuit. David said all this kind of, God, I love you. I will search for you. I long for you. All this kind of stuff. Verse 2. So, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Number four for developing a passionate affective spirituality is corporate involvement. 
That means you got to take this seat to this seat. Not me and Jesus got our own thing going, serving Jesus on the golf course. Yes, but at some point, your relationship with Jesus has got to lead you to the sanctuary where you can behold his power and his glory. Because you can't experience all of what God has for you. You can't be all that God has for you to be unless you are connected with the body of Christ. You see, you are not the body of Christ individually. Oh, well, I'm the body of Christ. Baloney. You know you're not. That's not what the scripture says. Together we are the body of Christ. With many members. If you're the body of Christ, then I don't want to be a part of that body because that's kind of <laughs> deficient. <laughs> right? Let's just use that word. But together we are the body of Christ. So, David said, I love Jesus with all my heart. I serve him. He's my God. I got it. And it leads me into the sanctuary. Because then when I get together with a bunch of other people. Can I just preach instead of teach for a minute? With a bunch of other folk that love Jesus like I love him. And have experienced him like I've experienced him. Something explosive happens. And my affections get reoriented when I'm together as iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Beholding your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. I've got to keep going. Number four, verse four, excuse me. So, and here's another so, I like that. So, they've said, This is my desire. It's led me to the sanctuary. This is my desire. This is another thing it's caused me to do. This is number five for developing your affective spirituality is gratitude. He says, So I will bless or thank you. As long as I live in your name, I will lift up my hands. Do you know what will reorient your affections as good as anything? Developing a heart, a spirit, a, a mentality of gratitude. You, it is impossible to thank God and complain at the same time. Did you know that? It's impossible to be depressed and to be thankful at the same time. Did you know that? If you start feeling smug, then just start thanking God. Well, he hadn't done it yet, Pastor. Well, he's done something, right? Go back to what he has just done before the thing that you're waiting on him to do and focus. See, any one of us are only about 30 seconds away from utter despair and hopelessness. If we focus on what has not happened yet, Instead of what has happened. Instead of what God is yet to do. Instead of what God has already done. If we get over in what hasn't happened and what he hadn't done and all the unanswered prayers, we're hopeless, we're depressed. But if we step over into what Jesus has done and all the times he's come through and with all the corn in the crib, as Pastor Clark would say, all the stuff that God has proven to me, then it's impossible to be upset. And then he says, this is the final thing. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed. And meditate on you on the watches of the night for you have been my help. Everybody shout, my soul will be satisfied. satisfied. The deepest part of me will be satisfied. That means when my affections are reoriented, it doesn't matter what my circumstances are like. 
I can lay my head down. And everybody around me can say, how in the world do you have so much peace and so much of your life is, is undone or is yet to be settled? Because my affections are tied to that which is eternal. I am, I, I'm living in this world, but I'm anchored in another world. I'm not denying reality. I'm living in reality. But I also know there's something that's greater than reality. And that is the truth of God is greater than my reality. He said, my soul's going to be satisfied. And this is what I believe you need to, to, to finalize this uh, effective spirituality. And this is it. Answered prayer. Everybody shout answered prayer. The biggest lie of the enemy that he tells me, and I believe he tells you too, is prayers don't have to be answered. Think about it. We are content and believe the lie that it's okay to pray for years and years and years and years and never get an answer. Even to pray and to wonder, well, will God answer this or will he not answer it? Listen, the only purpose for prayer is to receive answers. In fact, Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, two or three of you agree, depending on what translation, what gospel you read it out of, he said, then it will be done so that your joy would be full. The very thing that releases fullness of joy is the answer to prayer. And if the enemy can get you to believe faultly or improperly or in error, that you don't have to receive answers to prayer and you don't need to continually go to God as the unjust judge story taught us to get an answer, then he can rob you of your joy. God wants us to be satisfied with answers to prayer. So whatever you have that you've just been praying and you've just kind of now it's just like the routine, no, demand an answer. Now we're not demanding it from God, but we're telling, we're telling the enemy, listen, I'm not going to be content. You're not going to have me just just thinking that, that I'm just going to talk out there into space and hope something happens. God has given me the instrument of prayer not so that he could hear me talk. He did that so by prayer or through prayer I can access his world and bring it into this world. Shout amen. That's it. At the shadow of his wings, he said, I will, I will trust. And I love this example because David is speaking. He says, in the shadow of your wings, he's specifically referring to uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of God in a box. It was God in a box. It was the presence of God in the tabernacle of Moses. He, he told Moses to build a box and overlay it with gold in the, in the tent. Anybody ever seen Indiana Jones, right, in the, in the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Have you seen it? All y'all too holy. You never watch movies. Okay, okay, right? Well, that's that's the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's the presence of God, and in it were were the 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 uh, the Ten Commandments. It was called the Ark of the Testimony because the Ten Commandments that Moses got on tablets of stone were placed into the Ark of the Covenant. Also, uh, the pot of manna, a sample of manna from when they wandered in the wilderness. God said, "Take some." Normally, it wouldn't keep, but they put it in a pot, put it in the Ark of the Covenant. It was a testimony that God provided for them through their wilderness wanderings and then Aaron's rod that budded when God's authority was challenged God caused Aaron Moses brother to his his rod to bud and they put the rod in the ark so it symbolized God's authority symbolized his provision it symbolized his truth 
And, and, and on this ark, the lid of this box was called the mercy seat. And it was overlaid with gold and there were cherub, cherubim that were carved on either side with wings outstretched like this on either side of the lid on top of that box. And it was in between those cherubs and their wings that was called the mercy seat. It was on that seat that one time a year the high priest would slaughter the animal that would make atonement for the sins of God's people. He would go through all the rituals. He would slaughter him. He would go to the, the, the laver, the brazen laver, and wash his hands appropriately. He would go to the table of showbread. He would go to the altar of incense and offer up incense. And he had to do everything just perfectly, meanwhile carrying the blood of this animal that was slaughtered. And, and he would stand. He would finally end uh, in, in the inner court. He would end right before the most holy place. And there was a curtain. There was a veil. And depending on what scholars you read, it could have been as much as 12 feet thick. Not necessarily a single, a single curtain, but they think it might have been even a network of curtains that were all corresponding 12 feet. It was heavy. It was thick. And, and the priest, after he had done all of these special things and he had the blood of the lamb there carried and he had all of his priestly garments and, and, and he would stand before that. And if everything he had done was acceptable for the Lord, then he would move into the, the, the final level of intimacy with God where the Ark of the Covenant was called the most holy place. And, and some scholars believe that he would stand there and when, as being acceptable that the curtains would literally part. And he would walk through. Some others believe, some rabbis say that he would stand there and God would literally translate him through the curtain. Some believe he would have to crawl underneath the curtain. But they had sewn bells all the way around the, the end of his garments and they had tied a rope to his ankle. Because if he did anything wrong and he got before the presence of God and there was any, any sin or any transgression of the, the law or the principle, then God would strike him dead and they'd have to pull him out by the rope. But if he made it, and if everything went just perfectly, his goal, his eyes were on the mercy seat. In between those wings, there was a place where the Shekinah glory of God, the visible manifestation of God's presence, the, the seen glory of God dwelled in between those angels. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and the sins of the entire nation were pushed forward for you. And David said, in the shadow of your wings. Now, God doesn't have wings. He's referring specifically to the Ark of the Covenant. He says, in the shadow, that place of mercy where the blood was spilt that represents God's authority, his provision, represents his, his, his truth, it represents his sacrifice. He said, it's right in there that I will shout for joy. My place of contentment, my place of joy, my place of complete satisfaction where my soul rests is knowing that I'm in the presence of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that's what God wants for each one of us. We're going to change the world, not because we know the right things, not because we do the right things, but because the affections of our heart are totally captivated by the man Christ Jesus Stand on your feet. Let's pray tonight. Father, we just ask that you would let what we have heard tonight, let us not just have been taught, but let us catch it. Let, us, let it be an impartation, Father, that we would hunger and thirst after you. 
that we would find our satisfaction in you, not in what you tell us to believe, not in what we do to try to make ourselves righteous before you, but in a deep personal relationship with you that has reoriented our affections, our emotions, our motives, and just consumed our entire lives. And let us live out of that place of security in our relationship with you. Bless each person here, each family that's represented in Jesus' name. Everybody shout amen.